Amen. How many of you guys are going to be here for Christmas Eve? Wow. How many of you guys are traveling out of town? All right. How many of you have family coming to you? All right. Very good. A handful. Okay. Really? Kingston, who's coming to you? I didn't know we had family coming. Yeah. <laughs> it's new news in the Duncan household. Christ is risen, church. Amen. Good to see you all on this second Sunday of Advent. I have a couple of words I want to share with you before we get into the actual teaching in the morning. One of these words was a word that just dropped in my spirit early, early in the morning as I was praying and thinking about our time together today. And the other word is actually something that dropped into my heart as we were in worship. And I'm going to start with that one. It's found in Psalm 27. And this is literally the words that the song that we sang was taken from in Psalm 27, verse 13. This says, I remain confident of this. That I will see, say, I will see, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The land of the living means in your day, in your hour, before you close your eyes to slip into eternity. This is what the psalmist David says. I have, an, I have a confident expectation and I have a living hope that I will see the goodness of the Lord. How many of you guys have experienced the goodness of the Lord in 2022? Amen? How many of you experienced the goodness of the Lord at some season of your life where you can look back and say, the Lord has been good? Amen. And I want to just continue to pray over your life that more and more and more that you will experience God's goodness, that you will learn to look for it, that you'll learn to recognize his goodness in various seasons of your life, particularly in the, tr- in the troubling seasons. And the dark seasons and the desert seasons, actually our word today from the lectionary passages is that there is goodness from God for you in the desert and wilderness season of your life. The remainder of this verse goes on, verse 14, it says, wait for the Lord. And here's the Advent exhortation, wait, wait, wait. Don't give in, don't give up, don't throw in the towel. God is at work. He's with you and he's for you. He's with you, present with you, standing right with you in the middle of every difficult season of your life. He's with you, and he's moving on your behalf. This is part of our faithful witness that we proclaim week in and week out. Our responsibility as believers when we gather together is to remind you that God is working on your behalf, that he's with you. He is Emmanuel. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear any evil because he's with me. He's with me. Why should I fear when 10,000 rise up against me on every side? Though wars and rumors of wars come against me, I will fear no evil because he's with me. Right? I just slip behind daddy's leg and just know he's going to fight my battles. Wait for him. He's moving on your behalf. He's with you and he's at work on the behalf of his kingdom, which his kingdom is for you. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait. for. That's a good word for somebody today. In fact, I'm I'm taking time out of the sermon because I believe this right here is a now word for someone. Be strong, be strong, be strong. And I want you to know today that whenever God gives you a command, that he releases a grace to walk in obedience to that command. This is not, this is a non-negotiable. This isn't a, I think I'll be strong today. This is a command of the Lord, which he releases fresh anointing and fresh strength to you to be faithful to the command that he gives you, amen, and take heart and wait for the Lord. I'm going to pray into this here in a minute. I'm going to ask anybody 
who kind of identifies with this season of your life, I want to pray for you before we jump in. The second verse is one that I woke up with this morning in Psalm 84. And verse 5 says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. So we ended Psalm 27 where the scripture tells us, wait for the Lord and be strong. And then Psalm 84 says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. Now we can put our strength in a lot of things. And my default is to put my strength in myself, to put my strength in my capacity or my willpower or my charisma or whatever, you name it. But the scripture says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And then it goes on to say, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Other translations say, whose hearts are on journey with the Lord. Earlier this week, it was either this week or last week, I was texting with a dear friend and just reminding this person that we're all on a journey in God. And this person so sweetly uh, texted back and said, could you just remind us of all that on a Sunday morning? How many of you need to be reminded sometimes that we are on a journey? And I think what happens is the lie of the culture, the, the toxicity of immediacy. Jonathan and I discovered that phrase this week. There is a toxicity of immediacy. In other words, the enemy can work in speed. The enemy can get into our thoughts and our imagination. And if he can't get in front of us and slow us down, he'll get behind us and he'll speed us up. And he'll, he'll get us into a place of anxiety and frenzy. And it'll get us insecure thinking that we should be doing more, going faster than we really should. But the scripture tells us that there is a blessing for that perspective that reminds us that we're on pilgrimage. In other words, we're in this for the long haul. We're playing the long game. And that God is in the little steps. I want you to know that God's in the little steps. That when it feels like you're in an obscure season and nothing is happening, that God is in your little steps of love and your little steps of faithfulness. Your little steps of obedience, he's in that. And he's working with your little steps. So take heart, my friends. How many of you would say, Pastor Jade, I'm, I'm in one of these two verses. I just want to pray for you. And I want to know who I'm praying for. Thank you. Just raise your hands. Look around you. We're a family ministry in this place. So you can pray for yourself and you can also pray for someone here. Lord, I just pray for my brothers and my sisters today. Those that I know, that I've known for years. Lord, those that I haven't had the privilege of meeting just yet, I just sense the pleasure and the favor of God in this space. I sense the holy activity and the presence of God in this place. And I know that you, God, have been looking forward to this. You've been looking forward to this moment. You've been looking forward to your people gathering together in your home so you could break in and draw near in a unique way, in a way that's reserved for the gathering, in a way that's reserved for the table in a way that's reserved for the people of God who gather in your name. So Holy Spirit, would you draw close? Would you draw close? Would you just come so near to every single one of us, particularly those who are in this Advent season is so real right now. Those who might find themselves in maybe a wilderness, a barrenness, or a desert moment of their lives, would you draw near? Would you bring comfort? And would you bring strength? And would you cause the word to break in through the darkness and let Advent light shine in the darkness of our lives? Bring strength to our spirit to wait for you. Bring us perspective that comes from heaven. God, you are in the far reaches of eternity. You're on the other side. And there is a word that you have for our future that you can speak to us now that will settle our soul. And I'm asking today that you would do that. 
We welcome you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, I'm going to move forward with the lectionary passage today in the second Sunday of Advent. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 3. We're going to read 12 verses from verse 1 through 12. I encourage you, for those of you who might be new with us or maybe you are longstanding members but you weren't able to join us last week, you're going to get a good chunk of Advent context and Advent overview in last week's message if you're able to go back on YouTube or Facebook or even on the website and dial into last week's message. Uh, that's going to help you just kind of create a framework for the next few weeks that we have journeying together to Christmas morning. We are in the season of Advent. It's a season of contemplation where we slow down and we reflect on the presence and the activity of the Lord, both in our lives and in the earth. It's a season of preparation where we prepare our hearts. And you're going to hear these themes reflected in the liturgy of our songs. These songs aren't just arbitrarily thrown together. They're not these obscure songs, these random songs. These are songs that we're weaving together to come into alignment with what the Spirit is saying in this Advent season Really, throughout the globe, there are a lot of churches who are participating with Advent where they're, they're saying these same themes and they're sitting in these same scriptures, and a lot of them are singing very similar songs. And it's also a season of anticipation where we long and we look and we expect, we look for and we expect not only the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of all things, but we're looking for God to break in every day to our lives. And friends, I want to encourage you, look for it in the most, just the most subtle ways. Look for God in this season. He's there. He's showing up. He's at work in your lives. Read with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Isn't that amazing? That here's this kind of wily, unkempt, unpolished, throwback echo of Elijah hanging out in the wilderness and where, where God is and where there is a genuine hunger for God, you will go. You will go where you sense God is. Are you hearing me today? Like these people were abandoning luxury and comfort and pleasure and they were willingly going out into the wilderness because something inside of them was resonating with the sound that John the Baptist was bringing forth. It was a prophetic word underneath a prophetic anointing or spirit from God that was for that moment. It was, a, it was truly a, a, an inbreaking of the kingdom. It was a now moment in history, and people were sensing that, and they were responding to that, and therefore they were going out into the wilderness. They were leaving behind comfort and pleasure. They were leaving behind accessories, and they were going to play, they were choosing the wilderness to hear what is the word of the Lord for my life. Verse 7, or actually verse 6, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Here on the second week of Advent, it might feel a little peculiar that we're talking about people and events that come onto the scene after Jesus' birth. John the Baptist now, in the passage that we just read, is roughly around 30 years old or so because he and Jesus were born around the same time, and we have good reason to believe that Jesus was around his 30s when he started his earthly ministry. So you might scratch our head and go, God, this is so weird. Like, why, why are we on the journey to Christ's birth, fast-forwarding and listening to passages and people that come on the scene afterward? Well, because, again, some of the, the reasoning and the logic of the church calendar is that there are these movements that help us prepare for the arrival of Jesus and his birth and the arrival of Jesus and his second coming. There's larger biblical themes that are at work here that help us. Sometimes we go forward in order for us to go back, and sometimes we go back in order for us to go forward. And in this moment, we're listening to someone who is known as the forerunner, who is actually an echo of a man by the name of Elijah the prophet. And we find that John the Baptist comes on the scene in the wilderness. He comes on the scene in the literal barrenness of the backside of Judea. And there's so many references to the wilderness throughout scriptures. And I had forgotten about this, but there's actually a reference to the wilderness that dates all the way back to when mankind first fell. Those of you who are familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 3, you might recall that when Adam and Eve violate God's commands, that when they replace God's wisdom for their own judgment, when they replace God's rule and his kind of leadership in their lives for their own independence, this is part of the consequence. God says this. He says, now from the dust you came and the dust you'll return, So as a result of the decisions that you made, cursed will be the ground. Now remember, when Adam and Eve were born, they were placed in paradise, right? They were placed in a lush and lavish garden that was flourishing. It was fruitful. There was very little that Adam and Eve had to do in terms of their labor, their maintenance for that. And now as a result of sin that's entered into the fabric of humanity and the fabric of the created order, now mankind has to work and he or she has to toil. There's, there's, there's labor, there's resistance, there's oppression even, there's injustice that man is working against. And there is a sense, hear me, where we are all cosmologically in the wilderness until Christ returns and makes all things new. You know, we, we tend to think about wilderness seasons, and I'm going to speak to that. But I, I want us to 
realize that even in the greatest seasons of our lives, that we're still living in a sense of a wilderness until Christ returns. In fact, that is his great promise that I've come in to begin to work in and reverse that curse, but yet it is not fully abolished and it is not fully transformed. And the work that I have begun is not fully completed, but there will come a day when you will walk in and operate in your gift and in your calling and in your assignment, and it's going to be pure joy. It's going to be pure ease. Like the grace of what God has put in your life to create and to build and to engineer and to structure and to partner with God's spirit and God's work, you're going to do that, and it's going to be full fun. And some of you guys are like, thank God, because this has been a very toilsome season in my life. I want to just give you a little bit of an overview of where we're going to go. I don't typically do this, but I want us to see the path that we're taking, and then I'm going to, I'm going to hit it just as hard and quick as I possibly can. I want to talk with you about the reality of the wilderness, that those of you who've lived any amount of life in God, you know that none of us are exempt from wilderness seasons. Isn't that right? We're going to talk about what the wilderness looks like, but every single one of us have experienced these dry moments or these barren moments of our lives. Number two, here's the good news, that even though every one of us experience wilderness, none of us are exempt from it because of the reality of Satan and the curse and the fall, that there is a word that comes in the wilderness. God is always faithful to bring a word in the dark and dry desert seasons of our lives. Thirdly, there is a response. Every word that God brings to you requires a response. In fact, I hope that you walk out of here hearing and understanding that when God brings a word, that word is an invitation, right? It doesn't mean that what he says to you is automatic. God's always wanting to partner with you. He's always wanting to partner with humanity, So a lot of times he'll make conditional statements, but other times he'll give promises. Here's the promise I'm giving to you in the middle of your dark season. And if you respond, we get to work together for the fulfillment of that word to work in your life. And then finally, there is a promise in the wilderness. God doesn't just disciple us or discipline us in the wilderness. He brings the hope of his promise. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3. I want us to see some key words here. Beginning in verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This is no mistake. This isn't coincidence that John the Baptist begins his ministry. And very similar, I don't want to get into some of the nerdy nuances here, but if you go back and you look at the Elijah character. Now, Elijah was a prophet sent of the Lord to uncompromisingly declare the righteousness of God and call the people of Israel out of sin back to wholehearted faithfulness and obedience to God. But what you find when you, when you encounter Elijah in the middle of Ahab and Jezebel and just outright wickedness that's taking place in Israel, Elijah just appears. We get no backstory, we have no prequel, we have no origin story, we have no idea where he's coming from, uh, what his process has been. He just arrives onto the scene and he immediately begins wrecking shop. He begins disorienting 
the power structures of the day, speaking to and confronting the evil power structures of the day. And John the Baptist and the spirit of Elijah comes very much in the same way. Look at this verse. In those days, John the Baptist came. Now, this is Matthew's gospel. When we read Luke's gospel, we have the luxury of hearing some of John's backstory, but Matthew wants to just thrust John right into the middle of the action, and immediately he begins his forerunner ministry, calling people to prepare their hearts for the arrival of Jesus. I want to talk about the reality of the wilderness and identify some of the characteristics of the wilderness. And I'm going to talk about these literally, but then you can fill in the gaps and translate these to the figurative wilderness moments of your life and even of the world at large. I want you to think about 2022. I want you to think about the tragedies that even here in our own city a couple of weeks ago, Colorado Springs in that moment and in this season is touching a sense of a wilderness, right? Russia and Ukraine, that's a wilderness season. When you think about your own lives physically and some of the physical challenges and laboring to keep your faith strong in God, that could be a wilderness season. Some of you have been fighting in God to keep your heart. Some of you have been hoping and praying and fasting and interceding for children or for spouses, and it feels like, God, why hasn't fruit broken forth into my life? And this could be a wilderness season for some of you. So number one, the wilderness is a place of isolation. In fact, in the wilderness, all of our support systems are stripped from us. Number two, the wilderness is a harsh environment. Depending on where you go, whether it's harsh coldness or harsh heat, the elements themselves are working against us in the wilderness. And when you find yourself in a wilderness season, it can feel like everything's going wrong, nothing's going right. How many of you have been in seasons like that before? Yesterday, Sidron was telling me about a, a bad day that he had on Wednesday where it just seemed like nothing was going right, everything was going against him. From beginning with a flat tire to you know, his heater breaking down in his house to climbing up on a ladder to hang Christmas lights and his dog knocking the ladder down and him almost having a really, really bad accident, but thankful for the intervention of God, the last rung, the ladder, man, that ladder held him right there, right? He was like, Jade, all this happened before noon. <laughs> and some of us experience seasons like that where it just seems like, God, it just seems like nothing can go my way. The, the environment is harsh. The, the threats are hostile. I'm getting it on every side. I'm getting it from family members. I'm getting it from coworkers. I'm getting it from Facebook friends. I'm getting it from everyone seems to be opposing me or against me. The resources are scarce, sir, in the wilderness. Isn't that right? Resources are scarce. Think about natural wilderness. Water is scarce. Fruit is scarce. Think about your, your, your life when God leads you into wilderness seasons. It can feel like spiritual momentum is scarce. Desire for God can be scarce, right? And then these moments can feel barren. And walking with the Lord now for nearly 30 years for whatever reason, it just seems like there's these cycles in God. Cycles where God pulls you aside, where he creates a form of a wilderness. By the way, wilderness seasons in themselves aren't always bad. Sometimes God will engineer a form of a wilderness season to cut things, to cut distractions, 
to cut luxury and pleasures out of our life that are actually stealing our affections for God so that he can do deeper works in our lives, so that he can have our undivided attention, so that he can do deep, healing, transformative work in our lives. So, so wilderness seasons aren't always things that the enemy orchestrates. When you think about the children of Israel, God led them into the wilderness to learn how to trust him and to see what was in their hearts. Right right after this, we're going to go into Matthew chapter 4, not today, but Matthew chapter 4 follows this, and we find that Jesus himself was led into the wilderness. There's, there's God is in the wilderness, and he's at work in the wilderness moments of our lives. There are seasons of wilderness in the Christian faith, and it just kind of so happened, for those of you who like alliteration, it just so happened that all of these started with D. I did not plan this. But as I just began to type these things out, I was like, my goodness, there's the wilderness of darkness. What does that mean? It just means that, you know, you, you seem a little insecure on making decisions. Like, you know that there's decisions to be made, but it seems like, God, it's, it's dark. I don't have guidance. I don't have light. I don't have revelation. I'm not sure what decision to make or what direction to take. There's a wilderness of dry seasons in our lives where it seems like the closeness of God or the nearness of his spirit or the accessibility where our prayers are hitting, you know, the, bra- the, the heavens or brass, right? Those are, what, those are what would be called dry seasons. There's the wilderness of disappointment where you had your hope in something uh, in this life and in this world and you, and you went all in. Like you pushed all your chips on the table for that relationship or you, you went into business with that partner and things went awry or you believed for that child and deep, severe disappointment hits you. And I would call that a wilderness season. There's a wilderness of devastation, crisis, tragedy, trauma hits unexpectedly in our lives and thrusts us into emotional disorientation. And really, to be honest, it rocks our faith. And we find ourselves sometimes overnight, like you never plan for this, you never expect for it, but we can find ourselves in a place of devastation in a moment. And sometimes that can lead us into despair, the wilderness of despair, where we just say, God, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. My hope has been so shaken. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred moves us into a place of disillusionment. And then there's the wilderness of just dependence, where the wilderness teaches us, God, I have have nothing else but you, right? Part, Part of God sovereignly working in and working through the wilderness is he teaches us dependence, that there is no amount of favor, that there is no job, there is no promotion, there's no relationship, there's no treasure in this life that can ever come close to the treasure of having him as our source, of knowing who he is on that level, right? All right. So how many of you would say now that you understand some elements of the wilderness or some of those kinds of seasons? And by by the way, that's just kind of a cursory overview. But how many of you would say, yeah, Pastor Jade, I think I've touched a wilderness season of my life at some point um, in in my life, right? Here's the good news for you today. There's, There's a word. There's a word in the wilderness, There's a word in the wilderness. There's a word in the wilderness. And as I began to look here at John the Baptist's life, one of the things that I think is so exhilarating, so fascinating, and so hopeful 
is that before John the Baptist was ever born, God had already sent a word for the wilderness season of Israel. Y'all looking at me like you don't believe me. Go with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. I want to talk about this man, John the Baptist, because John is the embodiment of a couple of things. Some commentators will say that John is the embodiment of the Old Testament law. We're not going to get into that slice. Other commentators will say that John is the embodiment of the prophetic voice of God. We're going to, we're going to hang out there today. So who is John? John, number one, very simply, John is the favor of his parents. That's who he is. He is the favor of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're looking here at Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of God. They observed all the Lord's commands, and they observed his decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So here you have this couple. They've been living faithfully. They've been living obedient to God. They're a righteous man and a woman, which tells you that they're holding on to some form of hope in God. They've not just abandoned God because he's not come through and given them a child, right? And here's the word for some of you, that there is a word that brings blessing in your barrenness. There is a word for you that will bring blessing to you in your barrenness. Isn't it amazing that the word of God living in John comes to him in the place of his parents' barrenness. They were living in a desert season themselves. John was born to a couple that was in a wilderness season. Who else is John? John is the forerunner of Isaiah. So he's the favor of his parents, but he's the forerunner of Isaiah, which Seth read this verse. We're going to read it again, Isaiah chapter 40. I think I had on here chapter 4 in my notes. This was a mistake. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. This is a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged place a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Say, will be revealed. Come on, church. Say, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Amen. And the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God, before John was born, hundreds of years before John was to come as the embodiment of the prophetic voice to the people of Israel in the wilderness. God, in the wilderness, spoke a word. So here's here's what I want you to imagine right now. That before you ever got into the season or situation of your life, probably upwards of even decades, if not hundreds of years ago, God already spoke a word for this season. God has been fashioning and forming and growing and developing a word of hope and breakthrough, a word of restoration for you, and he sent that word before you were ever born. What was John doing before his prophetic ministry launched in the wilderness? I want you to think about this. I believe that John, for 30 years of his life, was living with a Nazarite community, fasting and feasting on the word of God. You know what John was doing? He was eating Genesis. He was eating Exodus. 
He was eating Leviticus. He was eating Deuteronomy and Numbers and Isaiah and Ezekiel. He's eating the word until the word of the Lord came. He was eating the word until the word came. He was feasting on the word, diligently meditating on, thinking about, contemplating, wrestling with, praying, prophesying, thinking about the word of God until the word came to him. You can't bring a prophetic word into your wilderness season until you feast long enough until the prophetic voice of God breaks in. Jesus said this when he's in the wilderness in chapter 4 when the enemy comes to him and he says, if you really are the son of God, if you really are the one that God loves, if you really are the prophetic Messiah of God, then work your power, work your magic a little bit and speak to these stones and make bread out of them. And Jesus says, hey, listen, Jack. Man doesn't live on bread alone. Throw back from Deuteronomy and throw back from Exodus. He says, man doesn't live on bread alone. He lives on every word that proceeds, every word that comes out, every word that is riding on the mouth of God. Man lives on revelation. So what do we do in the desert, in the barren, dry seasons of our lives? You go through the slow, boring, monotonous, dry, disciplined process of eating the word until the word comes. Because I promise you today, if you will live in the word, God will speak a word to you. But it's not just going to come from passively approaching God. It's not going to come from from abandoning God. It's going to come from saying, God, I'm going to stay in your word until I get a word. I'm going to eat your word until I become the word. I'm going to look at the word until the word comes alive to me. Let the word break into my barrenness and into the wilderness season of my life. This is who John is. John is the fulfillment of the longing of Zechariah and Elizabeth. John is the fulfillment of God's prophetic word that says, Israel, you guys are going to fall for me. Israel, you're going to run from me. Israel, you're going to be far from me. Israel, you're going to be thrown into exile and captivity. Israel, there's going to be 400 years where you're not going to have a word, but I'm shaping a word for you. I'm working on a word. Even now in the place of your darkness, there's a word that's being formed. There's a word that's being formed, and it's a word that it's exactly for you. It's going to come in your language. It's going to come in your dialect. It's going to come in your context. It's going to come to you in a way that makes sense to you. And when it comes, all of the darkness that is clouding your mind is going to blow away in a moment. And hope is going to come. And resurrection life is going to fill you because there is a word that has been released for you even before you were born for the darkest seasons of your life. Come on, church. Give the Lord a hand clap today. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi. He's the favor of his parents. He's the forerunner of Isaiah, and he's the fulfillment of Malachi. The very last verses of the Old Testament read this, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send, I will send, I will send. So the word there, there's a word that's being formed, and there's a word that's being spoken, and there's a word that's being sent to you, and God says it here. 400 years before John comes on the scene, God announced he set it in motion. Guys, there are things from God that are being set in motion for your life. And they were set in motion hundreds of years ago. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. 
And he will turn the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is Malachi. And then the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 again. And look what he says in verse 16. This is the angel who's the messenger of God speaking to Zechariah, who's in a wilderness season, hoping and believing and praying for a child. And here's the word, verse 16. Your son, your son will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous in order to make a people ready for the Lord. It's like word for word. It's word for word. What is that? What does that tell us? It tells us that in Zechariah and Elizabeth's darkest moment of their lives as a couple, God had already spoken something to them that was going to break forth into their barrenness and bring forth the fulfillment of a word that God had been setting in motion hundreds of years prior. Friends, don't give up. Don't cast away your confidence. Don't throw away your hope. Don't abandon your faith in the faithfulness of God. And I know, friends, I know it's difficult when your reality says everything but. But I'm just here today to to encourage you and to give you good news. God's working. And in the dry, dark, dismal, despairing seasons of your life, God has already set something in motion. For you hold on to that and trust in the goodness of God. So there's a reality of the wilderness. There is a word for you in your wilderness. But remember, every word has a response. It demands a response from us. And again, going back to Matthew chapter 3. So this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Listen to the word, prepare. Prepare. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. This is our response. Our response to the word is always a response of repentance. And I want to reframe repentance for us because what I want you to understand is that repentance very simply is our, it's our response to God. I think a lot of times, at least in my life, I've heard the word repentance and I've translated that to some form of remorse or some emotion of regret or loss or grief or, God, I'm sorry. And there is an element of that. But in its simplicity, repentance just means respond. Respond. That whatever it is that God says to you, friends, respond to it. If he says give, respond. If he says try again, respond. If he says I forgive you, respond. Receive it. If he says come, come. If he says, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock, open up your heart to me and I will come in and I will dine with you and I will make myself known to you. Respond. That's called repentance. And here's, here's the reasoning behind that. Every response of our lives requires some kind of change in our lives. It's a change of the way that we think about the normal circumstance at hand and it's a change In our behavior, it's a change in our belief, it's a change in our mindset, it's a change in our approach to God. So repentance at its core is humble, faithful, obedient, responding to God's gracious invitation. I want to talk about a couple of just characteristics, drilling down for a few minutes more deeply into repentance. Repentance 
The biblical notion of repentance means to change the entire direction of your life. Right? A secular or humanistic notion of repentance means some form of emotional regret. God doesn't want to bring emotional regret to you. God wants to reveal, he wants to bring revelation, he wants to bring revelation to what it is that you're doing in your life. He wants to get down into the root system and into the root structure. He wants to get down into why it is that you are doing the things that you're doing that are not producing the fruit and the life and the peace of God in your life. And some of that may be broken family systems. Some of that might be dysfunction that you've grown up with. Some of that might be core beliefs. And this is where God gets into repentance. God wants to get down into that level. This might be heretical, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say God is less, at the deepest level of who God is, he's less concerned about your behavioral management and your behavioral changes. He wants to get down and heal the root of those behavioral branches because he knows that if he can get down to the root and if he can heal that root of iniquity, And if he can redeem and restore and bring revelation of his goodness and his kindness down to the root structure, everything else, the fruit of those branches will take care of themselves. God cares about mending the crooked places of your life. And this is why when Isaiah says, make straight the way of the Lord, every valley will be lifted up and every high place brought down and every crooked place makes straight. God is saying at the core of your being, I want to straighten you out in a way that only I can do. You can't fix that lust problem. You can't fix that pride problem. You can't fix that arrogance. There's not enough psychotherapy. There's not enough behavioral management to fix the core brokenness and the core iniquitous crookedness of your life. You've got to let me in and participate with my redemptive hand in your life. Repentance is a command. And the command to repent, listen, friends, it's an invitation to grace. Like what we need to understand today is that God doesn't say, I'm going to send a forerunner to send out this, you know, prophetic word to say, repent, and then just sit back and watch you jump through hoops. That is not God. That is not God. Here's, I want you to, I want you to change your mindset. This is what he's saying. Son, son, come with me. Come with me. Let's work on this. Come on. Let's work on this. We can, we, can, we can fix this. Come. I want you to see things differently. I've got a better way. I've got a way that's going to save you a lot of energy. Daughter, daughter, babe, come here. Come here. I've got a better way. And I want you to learn. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle. This is going to be easy. Let's work together. That's repentance. It is an invitation of grace. It is an invitation of grace that every time God comes with loving discipline or loving correction or an invitation to repent, friends, I pray to God today that you see that through the lens of the grace of God. I'm here to help you. I'm here to work with you. The loving kindness of God is what leads us to repentance, right? Repentance is impossible without revelation. So one of the ways that we prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him is we cry out for revelation. 
How many of you have been in a season or a cycle or a situation of your life where you just keep doing the same thing, you keep doing the same thing, you keep doing the same thing, you keep trying harder and you keep trying harder, you keep getting more frustrated, you keep getting more disappointed? I've been in that cycle a big chunk of my life, and what I need is I need revelation to break in. Right? Again, because if I don't have revelation on the core of the issue, if I don't have revelation, it's, it's like a skilled surgeon that knows exactly what's going on there. And we've been misdiagnosing the entire time. But revelation gets us to the heart of the matter. And repentance can only happen when you hear the word of revelation that's, that accurately diagnoses exactly what's going on. Are you hearing me today? Friends, like for me, I'm going, my God, I need to cry out, Lord, I need revelation. I want to repent. But I don't want to go through the machinations of repentance. I don't want to go through the form of repentance. Lord, I want a repentant posture, and that's the next point. Repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is a lifestyle, which means very simply that repentance prioritizes intimacy. The spirit of repentance is, God, if there's anything that I'm doing that's coming between us, I want to remove that or change that or adjust that because I'm not willing for anything to affect the intimacy that I have with you. And I've not always seen my life and I've not always seen God in this way. But friends, I'm in a place where I'm like, God, if there is anything right now that is even remotely vying for the intimacy that God is pulling me into, get rid of it. And this is the spirit when Jesus says, hey, listen, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. If your left eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's not, he's not being, you know, gross here. He's saying, guys, the intimacy that I have with you is so deep and so intense and so passionate and so real and so life-giving that I, there is a place in God that by the spirit of the fear of the Lord and by the grace of God that you can say, my God, I, I want nothing to do with this because by revelation, you see how valuable intimacy is. My intimacy with you is more important than anything. God, this is a good word for some of the husbands in the house and for some of the wives. This is just a good word. And friends, like you, you, may, you may sit here and try to justify and explain, and but it's just a video game, or it's just a night with the girls, or it's just a drink here or there. It's, listen, if, it's, if it is interfering with the intimacy that is available for you, declare war on it. Declare war on it. Oh, I'm just, it's just a couple of scrolls at night. Declare war. Nothing is worth your intimacy with God. And that, friends, that's the heart of what repentance is. God is saying, I have more for you. I have more for you. Repentance enables us to experience and enjoy the kingdom more fully. Listen to the prophetic word of John. And Jonathan, you can come forward. Listen to the prophetic word. Repent, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, what I want you to hear is not the Lord is not coming because we repent. The Lord is coming whether you repent or not, right? So the, in, the announcement of repentance is actually an invitation and opportunity for us to get ready. It's an opportunity for us. To, it's grace. It's grace. Jesus could pop him out of nowhere without the prophetic announcement, and people would not be in a place where they could see him or receive him. But in his grace, he says, I'm going to send 
I'm going to send a forerunner. In my grace, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make adjustments because I want to come to you. Because I want to bring the fullness of my kingdom to you. Listen to the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's here. It's here. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. I want you to receive the fullness of what I have for you. So I'm sending you grace. I'm giving you time to change. I'm giving you time to get into the hard issues of your life and do business with them in me because I want to bring the fullness. I have more for you. I have more for you. I have more for you. I have more for I want to bring the fullness of my kingdom to you. So repent, change. Come after me. Seek my wisdom out. Seek my wisdom out. This is what Advent is about. Christ is coming. And what a beautiful gift that three Sundays out from Christmas, in the wisdom of the fathers and in the wisdom of the Spirit, he is saying, get ready. Get ready. Take time. Pause. Shut it off. Draw near. Hear my word of grace. Hear my word of promise in the wilderness of your lives. And then the final promise that John gives, I baptize you with water. Oh, Holy Spirit. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what you know what John is announcing? It's promise. It's promise. Repent, make ready, make straight. And I'm going to release something to you that the earth has never seen. I'm going to pour out my spirit on your life. I'm going to put a spirit of obedience in you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to put me in you. Friends, will you stand with me to your feet this morning? Jonathan, as we come to the table, would you just lead us and prepare the way? Prepare the way. Prepare the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way. Prepare the way. Prepare the way.
Some of you might be sitting here saying, Pastor Jade, what do I do with this? How do I respond to this? And I want to model this for you. Because at the heart of this message, the heart of this message is after your heart. The heart of the word to repent and make ready a place for the Lord, it's after your heart. God, I want a heart that is tender towards you. This is a way that you can pray. Lord, I want a heart that's tender towards you. I want to see things the way that you see things. Lord, anything in my heart that is hard against you or hard towards you or calloused or defiant or resistant or angry, Lord, would you come in your grace and soften these places of my heart? This is repentance. Lord, I'm inviting you into the root structure of my life. I'm inviting you into every dark corner, God, of my heart. You can open up every door. You can go into every room. You can heal every broken place, every wound, neglect, abandonment, abuse, violation. Lord, you can come into these places with your gentle touch, with your trustworthy voice, and you can heal. This is repentance. Lord, I want to, I want to prioritize intimacy with you above anything in my life that is bringing me temporary pleasure. This is repentance. Lord, I wanna make a room for you. I want you to rest on my life. I want your spirit to rest on my life. I want your spirit to find its home in me. I want to be a vessel and a temple, God, that you can come and that you can abide in and that you can rest on and that you can reach the world through. This is repentance. God, I'm asking that you would address my mindsets and my belief systems that are not in alignment and not in agreement with your wisdom. This is repentance. God, my sexual sin, my sexual identity that is not in agreement with your wisdom and that is not in agreement with what brings true life, come and bring your correction. Come, Holy Spirit of God, and lead me into a better way. This is repentance. God, every crooked place of my life that is leading me away from you, come and straighten out the crooked places of my life. This is repentance. Come, show me how to make a room for you, to make ready my heart for you. Holy Spirit of the living God, I welcome your discipline. I welcome your voice. I welcome your perspective. I welcome your correction. I welcome your loving guidance in my life. This, friends, is repentance. It is a cry. It is a plea. It is a response. It is a heart response. And I promise you, if you, if you will build a lifestyle of this over and over and over again, what you will find is this. You will find the closest, most tender, most intimate, most precious one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. You will find him inviting you into the secrets of his heart. You will, you will find him to be the most perfect father and the most passionate lover and the most faithful friend. You will, you will discover that about him, I promise you. You will discover that about him. And he will lead you into the way everlasting. And with that, friends, I want to invite you to the table and we'll participate together. You can exit on.